Test of faith. James chapter 5. James chapter 5, beginning with the first verse. James chapter 5, beginning with the first verse. I was reading this week on uh, some articles on lessons that were learned from the Great Depression. And there were uh, several older folks who sat down and recorded some of the things that their parents had passed down from them and lessons that they learned, lessons that they implemented after the Great Depression nearly 80 years ago. And here are some of the things that they recorded on lessons that they felt like that they gleaned from the Great Depression. Number one, learn to patch it, sew it, or fix it yourself. Number two, don't use credit. If you can't afford something, don't buy it. Number three, save up for a time of an emergency. Number four, forget the Joneses. It won't matter when everything begins to crack. Number five, can it, bag it, jar it, uh, whatever, whatever you can. I, it's interesting. Uh, my mother, when she comes back, so my mother's 74 years old. Every time she comes and visits us, she brings some jars of things. You know, here's some jarred fruit, some jarred peaches, here's some jarred jams. I remember my grandmother and my mother always making those. And uh, I'm such a loser, I don't even know how to do that. I just take a lid and screw it on. I don't know what they do to make that happen, but I, I think I'm about to go learn. Number six, appreciate any job that you have. Yes. And uh, number seven, I lost my sheet. Um, help, help one another out. That's what number seven is. Help one another out. They found that those who helped one another were those who survived the best, who fared the best in uh, the Great Depression. Those who isolated themselves or who had not built relationships uh, some often only had a couple of crops that they grew. And if uh, they weren't able to make it there, then they were, they were just in, in dire straits. And so that was interesting. This was a very secular article, but the last one is, and most importantly, help one another out. As we look at James chapter 1 here, it's interesting as we read uh, this first section, it involves, as a matter of fact, in many ways is a continuation of chapter 4 of the message that we looked at last week. And it is a... First, a, a warning to those who are rich and those who have possessions. The second part of James that we'll look at is the importance of our integrity and persevering and uh, having patience during those times. And then the third part of this chapter is prayer, and we will get to that next week. As we come into chapter 1, in, or chapter 5 in verse 1, uh, you'll see that first verse is, Now listen, you who are, who are rich, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. And that's an odd expression and something that seems almost kind of out of place to say. But it was interesting. I was reading uh, from the Associated Press. They had an article uh, about those who had won the lottery. And uh, while it's not true of all of them, it gave the case of how, matter of fact, there was probably over 30 people who've had tremendously negative experiences from winning the lottery. I'll, I'll list just a few of them here. Uh, Evelyn Adams, who actually won the lottery twice, uh, 20 years ago, uh, said, found, this was found to her. She is now today living in a trailer, and she said this when they interviewed her. Everybody wanted my money. Everybody had their hand out. 
and I just had a difficult time with it. Uh, if I could win again now, I'd be much smarter. Uh, I, and I, what money that I didn't give to my relatives, and the real truth of it, most of it, I ended up gambling away at Atlantic City. William Bud Post won $16.2 million at the Pennsylvania Lottery, now lives on his Social Security check for $450 a month and food stamps. He says, I wish it had never happened. It was a total nightmare. Suzanne Mullins, who won the Virginia Lottery uh, 10 years ago, now is so deeply in debt uh, that her own attorney has sued her. Um, hate it when that happens. Uh, Ken Proxmire, the winner of the Michigan Lottery, moved to California, opened a business, bought, bought a home, and now has gone bankrupt. William Hurst of Michigan, uh, a lot of people in Michigan didn't do too well with their money here, uh, lost everything, is broke, is divorced, and has an addiction to crack cocaine. Uh, Charles Riddle, another uh, winner in Michigan, uh, lost his wife, his family, and has been indicted for selling cocaine. In Missouri, Janetta Lee, who won the lottery, now has filed for bankruptcy and only has $700 left to her name. And then one final family uh, that won the lottery, uh, the house, our cars, our relatives, and everything that we bought uh, has gone. Eleven years later, we are now divorcing, lost our house, and are trying to split uh, the remaining few thousand dollars that we have left. It was no pot at the end of the rainbow. It was actually a nightmare for our family. Now, I don't suggest to you that that's happened to every family, but the real truth of it is that at least has to have us consider the uh, possibility that sometimes it's simply more blessed to give than to receive that's for some, and for many, the truth of it is, is we have great difficulty handling money, and money truly is the root of all kinds of evil, as the Scripture tells us. Now, in this particular passage, there's debate amongst scholars whether it is being spoken to the church, the believers, or those outside of the church who are unbelievers. Uh, there are those who feel both, and I would say this, I, I think it's probably both. I believe this is a universal principle that's true regardless of whether we are believers or not. Um, universal principle simply means that for yesterday, for today, and for every day, uh, it is a truth that can be applied. Verse 2, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes and your gold and your silver have corroded. In the turn of the first century, the primary way that you displayed your wealth or a person was known to have wealth, number one, they had plenty of food. They had more than they needed. And in many instances, uh, when there was even much less preservation than we enjoy today, if you had a lot of food, a lot of times it would begin to rot if you didn't eat it soon enough. And that was a common characteristic of those James is indicting. You have so much food, yet there are those who have need, yet... Yours is rotting. You have so much. You're not even able to eat all that you have. Moths have eaten your clothes. Again, the way that wealth was displayed would be in the linen that they would wear and the clothing. And often there would be jewels that were woven into those fabrics. And he said moths have begun to eat, and to eat your wealth. And then the last way, their gold and your silver have corroded. Probably at that time, uh, 
Uh, the coinage even then had alloy in it. And as he's speaking, he says, Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. And now James gives four reasons why in this particular instance that their wealth has been destructive, has destroyed who they are. And here are the four reasons. Number one, you've hoarded what you have. We know that they had hoarded the food because it had literally begun to rot. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who have mowed your fields are crying out against you. Secondly, they had obtained it in an unethical manner. They had obtained it at the expense of those who had nothing. So what was happening, either they were not fully paying the wages that were deserved or they simply weren't paying it at all. And they were able to misuse their power. So they were hoarding and they were not paying a fair wage or they were not fulfilling their contract against for those who had worked for them. The cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on this earth in luxury and self-indulgence. <clears throat> not long after this was the time of Nero, and we know many stories about Nero, but one of the things we know from history is that Nero had this hole in his palace, in his banquet room, and it was about a 15-foot hole that had been dug out of the, of the stone there that just went down into the ground. And what Nero would do is he would take his he would eat and drink so much that after a period of time he would waddle over to that hole and simply purge himself and throw up and then go back and eat some more. As we see that, that we certainly would qualify that as self-indulgent. And some of us could be sometimes qualified in that manner. And James has got some strong things to say about those who hoard, those who do not pay the wages of those who work for them, those who simply live in self-indulgence. He says, you have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned the murder of innocent men who are not opposing you. What probably happened, some of those who were not paying kept crying out and they were placed in jail or some even executed because those that had the wealth ruled the court system. James is speaking out to these injustices at this time. And there are some lessons I believe that we, we need to learn and we need to glean. I was reading Ron Blue. Many of you are uh, familiar with him, and uh, he has written so many books and articles about finances and Christian finances, and he gives four biblical uh, standards or principles for handling our possessions. Number one, always remember God owns everything. Number two, we are always in a growth process and money is a tool that God uses in our lives to, to mold us. And it's a great indicator of how we handle our possessions, what we do with the money that we're given, how we use it has a lot to say about our faith and about the validity of it. Number three, the amount that we make is not important in regards to God's principles. So it's not, uh, well, you know, if I had that much, then I'd help. I'd give. I would help meet some of the needs that are before me if I had that much. Really, it's something that God has commissioned us each to do regardless of the amount we possess. And number four, our faith requires action. What do we do with what God has given? Are we using it or are we simply stacking it up? They also, we learn from this passage right here in verse 1 through 6, the insecurity of possessions. Number one, possessions cannot shield you from sorrow. Truth is, it doesn't matter how much money you have, someday you're going to die. Someday you're going to get sick. You can get hurt and injured just like anyone else. 
you lose loved ones. There are pains that come upon you regardless. The Bible tells us that the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. And our money and possessions cannot shield us from that. Number two, possessions cannot safeguard you against a crash. Uh, As we read about those lottery winners, uh, you know there are going to be crashes in life. We see the economy with a downturn. Sometimes people are laid off. Many of you have experienced that or at least the threat of that. Possessions cannot, cannot prevent those crashes from occurring in our lives. Uh, we cannot prevent, uh, our money does not prevent our children nor our spouses, though those of our love, we love from making bad decisions sometimes that tremendously hurt us. Number three, possessions cannot shelter you from the day of judgment. James says here that one day judgment will come and it won't matter what we have. Judgment will be coming and we'll be rewarded for what we've done. As the old great evangelist said, payday someday. Old Vance Havner used to preach a sermon called Payday Someday. Someday we will stand before the Lord and account for what we have done and for what we have not done. Now, this next passage moves on and it talks about advice on suffering. Advice when we're walking through difficult times in our lives. Now, let's look at another passage that kind of gives a little background to this. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the very next book, 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning with verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning with verse 8. It's the very next book. You've got James, then 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning with verse 8, says this. And as a matter of fact, we see a lot of the things that were spoken of by James uh, as well. Peter is reiterating some of them. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. There are other people that are in the world, not just in the world, but in our very area, probably in this very room, who are undergoing some of the same challenges and some of the same types of suffering that you are. And the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered for a while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Uh, The Bible tells us clearly there that sometimes suffering is going to come, and it won't be because you've been bad. It won't be because you've been good. It will be because this is part of life. Sometimes God allows us to experience situations uh, for a while just as sometimes we allow our children to experience situations that maybe are uncomfortable for them, Uh, just as sometimes they have problems, maybe at school or with other relationships, and we don't jump in, we sometimes exercise some wisdom because we recognize this is a time of growth. As you see this passage here in James chapter 5, turn back with me to verse 7. Be patient then, brothers, 5-7. Brothers, until the Lord's coming, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and the spring rains. I remember when I was a kid, we grew several different crops. And uh, I remember my dad said, I tell you what, I'm going to let you grow some watermelons this year. I I was four or five years old and I was all excited. So he he had plowed up the field and he gave me one of the rows, the first row that was closest uh, to our house. And and, uh, he plowed that up and I took seeds and I placed them in the ground and covered them up. 
I even went out and watered them, even though you really didn't have to in South Louisiana because it rained all the time. And I'd go out and water them. And, you know, about a month or two later, they started to sprout up. And uh, here, here they are. And I, I said, Dad, is, is it almost time? Is it almost here? And he goes, no, it's still going to be a while. And I remember not long after that, uh, a little ball about that big around, I went out one day and it was on there on, on my watermelon uh, my watermelon vine there. And I was so excited that I pulled that little ball off there. And I, and I took it in and I was trying to cut, you know, try to get into it. And used, used to back then, they wouldn't give me a knife, so I'd just take it on the concrete, you know, and try to break them. And I just couldn't do it. And my mom found me trying to get a knife. And she said, what are you doing? I'm trying to cut my watermelon open. Here was the problem, though. I had picked it way too early, and there was no fruit to be had. It was just a big rind. It wasn't even big. It was just a small little rind, just a little ball. You know why? Because time, it had not had enough time to produce the fruit. It had not matured to a point that you would want to eat it or that you would want it. That's so true in our lives. One of the reasons that we experience difficult times and sufferings is so that, quite frankly, we might become sweeter, that we might become more palatable, that we might become men and women whom people are drawn to because we have had the experience of time and suffering and rain that has matured us and made us more into the image of Christ. Continue here in verse 8. You too be patient and stand firm. You see those same uh, words used in 1 Peter chapter 5? Because the Lord's coming is near. Now, many interpret that as the second coming of Christ. It probably means that as well. But you know what I really think it's talking about there is that God's going to come, just as He said in First Peter, and after a while. So many times we pray those prayers and we go, God, I need you right now. And we wonder, what's going on here? Well, sometimes it's our sin blocking because we have selfish motives, because we have more important things to deal with that God wants to deal with our heart. But sometimes it's really not a sin issue at all. And we pray... And it seems like heaven is silent. St. John of the Cross called that the dark night of the soul in that time where God tries to wean us from those feelings and from the box that we've placed Him in and we tell Him that this is how you work, God. Sometimes He allows us to have space and time in order that we might learn to trust Him through that time that He might sweeten our spirits. I believe that James is speaking to a group of people who are certainly struggling in an immense way. They've been persecuted. Maybe they have been the ones that have been enduring these atrocities that the wealthy have been inducing. And James is saying, you too be patient. Stand firm. The Lord will show up. In His time, He will relieve. He will speak. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you, as, as you know, we consider blessed are those who have persevered. You have heard about Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So we know what we're supposed to do. Now, how do we do it when those times come? 
Here's James writing to his church, the earliest, the earliest writing that we have, speaking to those who've been oppressed. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be patient. I want you to persevere. I want you to stand firm. I want you to not grumble and complain. And I want you to maintain your integrity, your spiritual and ethical integrity. So how do I do that? How is that possible? Well, let me give you a verse for you to mark and write down. Genesis 50.20. 50.20. And what happened in Genesis 50.20? Many of you remember the story of Joseph, the 11th brother of 12 sons, who got a nice coat and his brothers didn't get one. And they got kind of jealous, got tired of hearing him talk. He had all these dreams. He was kind of annoying, an annoying younger brother at this point, even though he's probably 16, 17, 18 years of age. And his brothers decided they had enough. He goes to check on them, and they said, here comes that knucklehead, let's kill him. But the older brother said, no, let's not kill him, let's not shed our own blood. Uh, let's put him in this hole. They put him in the hole, and after a while, there was a caravan that came through, and they sold him as a slave. He's taken as a slave into Egypt. He gets there. He works uh, for a man named Potiphar. Potiphar has much trust and respect in him. But Potiphar's wife is hot for Joseph. And because he won't sleep with her, she finally gets so mad and some, so jealous that she makes up a lie. And here's Joseph. Finds himself in jail. Here's Joseph. I hadn't really done anything wrong. Maybe I was a little bit nerdy as a kid, but I really hadn't done anything to deserve this. My brothers have sold me into slavery, and now I'm in prison because of my integrity. Remember that. He's there because of his integrity, not because of his lack of. Finds himself there, and he interprets a dream for a couple of people, and one of them's a wine taster. And they end up finding themselves restored for the king, but they forget about Joseph as he sits in prison. And then one day, the Pharaoh has a dream. Has a dream that greatly disturbs him, and none of his people can tell him what it is. None of his wizards, so to speak, or his interpreters, none of them can tell him what's going on. And so the wine taster remembers Joseph, calls for Joseph. Joseph comes, and Joseph interprets the dream. He says there's going to be seven years of much. You're going to see the crops thrive, and there's going to be a lot of food, but then there's going to be followed by seven years of disaster, seven years of famine. So Joseph gives that interpretation, and he is placed at second in command of Egypt. And sure enough, they have seven great years, but then the suffering comes. Then the famines come. And it's not just there in Egypt. It's all throughout the known world of that particular time. And it reaches out to where his brothers and his father is. And so his brothers come in search of food, and Joseph recognizes who they are. And I'll skip to the end. He gets to the end there, and he finally reveals himself who he is. And they fall down. They said, we should be your slaves. And Joseph says this in Genesis 50, 20. Joseph said, you intended this for ha to harm me. Your translation may say, you meant it for evil. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. That horrendous experience that, that I have gone through, God is using it. He has redeemed those years and redeemed that time for such a time as now. Genesis 
is a good verse to remember, is a good aspect to remember when we wonder, why is this happening to me today? Second Samuel chapter 16, story of a man called Shimei. Now, Shimei is not a name that we use for our children today uh, with good reason. All we know about Shimei is that he was a follower and he was an advocate of the Saul administration. You know, King Saul was first and now David. Now Saul's gone. David's taken his place. And Shimei is, is kind of having a heyday at this point because now Absalom has begun to overthrow David. And Shimei begins to yell at David as he sees him walk by, begins to curse him and literally throw rocks at him. And here's this man up on top of a hill throwing rocks and cursing at David. And one of David's men says, why don't you let me go cut that dog's head off? It's literally what he said. Why don't you let me just go cut his head off? And David says, no, I don't want you to do that. Now, this is the same David, I'll remind you, who years earlier sees a woman bathing and not only commits adultery with her, but has her husband come in when he has enough. Uriah the Hittite has so much integrity, he won't sleep with his wife because it was kind of the military code because he won't go. David literally puts in Uriah's hand his death order and has him killed. So here's the same man who committed adultery and committed murder. Now, years later, has been softened greatly. His humility has grown He's a different man. And he says this. He says, let him alone and let him curse me. For the Lord may have let him do that. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. Now, as we look at this passage and we look at these principles, uh, as we look back, we see that there are many who endured suffering, endured it well, whether it be Job, whether it be Joseph, whether it be David. We can look in our own lives, and we respect those who have been through difficult times. It's important for us to look back even in our own lives, and we see processes that have grown us that we would have never chosen. But it's also important to look ahead, to recognize this, that God will compensate us for our losses, that one day... The score will be even, and we will be blessed for every suffer, all the suffering that we've done for His sake. God carries us through our losses, and God's judgment will come one day. And God will use this time for His purposes if we will engage Him. I want to share a story with a family who they were just here the last hour. Their name's the Underwoods, Shane and Michelle. Matter of fact, Michelle uh, trusted Christ, made a commitment to Christ about six months ago, and we baptized her right here. And um, Shane shared his story with me. I met him. He just lives on the street behind us. <clears throat> shared his story when I first met him. Shane grew up, didn't never knew his father. Uh, his mother left him when he was about six years old, and he grew up with his grandmother. And he said, uh, my grandmother really didn't have anything. I can remember standing in line for cheese and for food stamps. And uh, that was kind of my life growing up. Didn't have any brothers or sisters. And uh, then after his junior year, he moved up to Metroplex, got a job during that summer, and then got himself an apartment and finished his senior year as he worked and put himself through school. And then just a couple of years later, uh, he was able to go to fire school and become a fireman. It's kind of his dream. So he's been a fireman uh, for about 20 years. And um, about 
seven months ago in May, Shane had a seizure when they were on family vacation. And when he had this seizure, uh, he went out and luckily his wife, who serves as a part-time nurse, was able to revive him. They couldn't figure out what it was. And so during this time, he was uh, forced to stay home and he, he had a lawn care business that he lost. And, uh, and then, of course, he was on leave for a while. And, uh, and then he found out from his work that uh, he was going to be let go, uh, that he was going to be terminated uh, because he couldn't come back to work soon enough. So here's a man who uh, grew up, had a hard life. He's got three young children, all five and younger, uh, and a wife who has just had a baby uh, not too long ago. And here he is in the midst of a time where he's lost both jobs, and now he's being asked to, to trust, to trust Christ, wondering how things are going to work out, how are we financially going to make it. And uh, many of you prayed for them. And, you know, I remember just two, two weeks ago talking to him, and he had uh, filed a, a grievance trying to get his job back. And uh, they had, the attorney had warned him, you know, this can take up to two, three years. They can tie this up in court for a long time. And so we began to pray, and uh, he went back for his last test, and they cleared, but now he still had to get his job back. And then just on Monday, uh, he found out he was going to be able to go back to work. He went back to work this past Monday. Uh, the courts, as they got into it legally, they realized what had occurred. And, as a matter of fact, somebody uh, got in big trouble and was demoted over it. But for six months, here he is thinking he's not going to have either one of his jobs. God has restored now, that was a very painful time and a very difficult situation, very growing time for someone who's been through a lot of growing times. And this passage right here had to come into play. Verse 8, be patient, persevere, and stand firm. Well, here's some principles that James gives us during these times. And let me give you these four. Number one, be patient. Recognize that there are going to be difficult times. Recognize that things are going to happen to you in life that are not fair. And God wants you, most of the time, to endure it. Now, what this is not saying is you don't defend yourself. You don't take progressive steps. But what it's saying here is you don't have to get into the degrading business. Sometimes people are going to attack your ego. They're going to attack your self-esteem. You be patient. Stand for what is right and trust. You know, I, I've had those situations. Uh, I had somebody, uh, apparently there are those who feel like we have gas wells on our property. Let me say this. We don't have any gas wells on our property, and we don't even own the mineral rights on our property. But uh, that didn't stop uh, a couple of folks from being very angry when I'm called and was very mad. And I won't share with you all the words that they used. Uh, and I kept trying to say, you, you don't understand. And they kept informing me that, that they did understand. And, um, and finally, after about ten minutes, I said, can I just say something? And I let them know. I said, look. We don't own a gas well. Uh, and even if we had one on here, we don't own the, the mineral rights for it. Uh, that was already decided before we ever got here. That's just the way things are, so I apologize you got that information. But you know, the, you know what I really wanted to do? And it's one of those times where I was uh, had a little bit of common sense, and I really prayed before I got on the phone because I knew this was going to be bad. Uh, I'd already received the emails, and uh, I really just wanted to just yell, scream, and call names. That's what I really want to do. You know, it's just the flesh part of me. It makes me feel better. And um, it was one of those rare times where I didn't. Can I give you a time where I did do it wrong just a few weeks ago? Uh, I'm sitting in a coffee shop, 
And, um, you know, and I think I shared part of this before. This guy comes in and, and he sees I'm with someone else and we're looking at the Bible. And he goes, believe all that stuff? I go, yeah, actually I do. And um, he goes, you know, he goes, you go to the village, don't you? I go, I know, actually I don't. And uh, I guess everybody, in, everybody goes to 407 to the, to the village coffee shop. I, I, I guess everybody goes there. But anyway, so we start talking. He starts saying, you know, well, archaeology has pretty much proven that uh, that's all a lie and none of that's true and Red Sea, this and that. And he starts going through all these things. I said, oh, really? Uh, can you give me the name of a couple of these archaeologists? Well, there's just a lot of them. I said, give me the name. Give me, give me the names of one. He gives me Jacob, uh, Jacob Jason Vesey, who actually is not an archaeologist. He's a Hollywood director who's made a movie. I said, I don't think he qualifies. And to be honest with you, I got real snotty. That's just what I did. I got real snotty. Didn't tell him I was a pastor. I love those situations. And, um, and he couldn't answer any of my questions. And, um, and I felt kind of, you know, and I, I felt kind of good. And finally he just walked away. And I was with, with that guy and, and I looked at him. I go, I didn't handle that very well. He goes, no. You know, you really, you really didn't. Thanks. He said, you know, you, you might want to just encourage him to read and, and, and maybe just listen, but you, you made him kind of look stupid. That's exactly what James is saying don't do right here. And, you know, it's just our natural inclination to respond in that manner. James says, be patient. Endure. If they're only after your ego, let it go. Stand firm on the Word of God. It's easy to become discouraged, to become hurt and become disappointed and say, I quit. Galatians 6.10 says this, but if we will endure to the end, we will reap the harvest of plenty if we do not quit. Stand firm. Number three, don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't get whiny. Start to look at other people's problems or their other their faults and start to focus on that. And start to grumble and complain and murmur. Number four, persevere with integrity. Uh, we don't have time to go into that last part, but I'll get into that next week for you. But here's the, here's the question for you. Today, and this is literally happening, in India, uh, in parts of India, by radical extremists, there's been a $250 uh, premium put on pastors and ministers' head. For any of those that are killed, this group will uh, give $250. Now, that's persecution. Most of us think persecution is somebody finds they're a Christian and they go, Do you believe all that stuff? We think that's persecution, or we think somebody, when they uh, get on to us or mock us because of a conviction or a standard we have, that that's persecution. Can I tell you this? Here's what Jesus requires of us at a minimum, to persevere. Number two, not to just persevere, but to stand firm. It doesn't mean that we have to be sharp with our tongue, but that we continue to trust. Number three, to not grumble and complain about it. And number four, to exercise a spirit of integrity. And we'll talk more about that next week. What about you? There's a homeless man I was reading in the Associated Press about six weeks ago who uh, found, a ch- found some money, found a wallet, and it had $1,000 in it. And he turned it in. He's been saving money to get himself an apartment. He turned it in. And when they interviewed him, they said, why would you do that? He said, well, I-, I got it. And at first I thought, all right, here's, here's the money. God's provided. They probably got more than I do. But as I looked at that picture, I just knew this was wrong. It turned out it was a single mom with three children. 
that wouldn't have been able to pay rent. And they asked him, why would you do that? He said, because I knew it was the right thing to do and that God can't bless me if I'm not going to do things right. What about you? Are you willing to do what's right even when there's a great cost?